Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 225 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday night, August 31st, 2022. It's actually raining here in Austin. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Fortunately, we were recording this inside. <laughs> Unlike our usual outdoorsy practices. I'm sure many listeners are like, why... So it's raining. So what? Hey, we haven't had a lot of rain this summer. This is a big deal for us. Yeah, the weather here has been kind of, oh, how do I say, warm. Droughty? <laughs> Droughty. Uh, arid. Hey, I've, I've appreciated the impact on mosquitoes that the drought brings, but I uh, did not appreciate the impact on my trees. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, no bugs, but also no grass. It's, a, it's an interesting trade-off. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, uh, hey, we've got a lot more to talk about coming out of Mar-a-Lago. Oh, I, I, I just want to apologize to our listeners. Like, you know, this is... Uh, <sighs> I, the absence of more serious content? I mean, this content is serious. It's it just, is. It's just stupid. Like, like, I, I, like, I think it is. It is possible. I, I think, like, if you have like stupid on show one title, axis, serious, <clears throat> stupid. Like, if you have seriousness on one axis and stupidity on another axis, like, I feel like we are, you know, toward the top right the of the X Y. So, uh, to to borrow a phrase, they're at their respective maxima. Is that? I mean, kind, well, I don't know that we're at the maxima for serious. We're, we're sort of midway on no, seriousness. We, oh, we've seen stupider. We've ever seen stupider, but 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 you know the the both are increasing. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking that we needed to have the show title riff off of the word obstruction. So like you know, uh, a la Guns and Roses, appetite for obstruction, perhaps mm. some other some other play on destruction. Bobby, I asked my student, I asked my one else today if they had seen Trading Places because we were reading the Omni Capital case, which is about <laughs> these shady commodities brokers. <laughs> what is it about? Uh, Frozen uh, orange juice concentrate? It was not about frozen concentrated orange juice, <laughs> but um, it was from 1987. Um, and Bobby, in my class of 24 fantastic 1Ls, I think two of them had seen Trading Places. Do you think so, they know Eddie Murphy? Well, so then I said, how many of you have seen Coming to America? And they're like, oh, yeah, no. Oh. Oh, and I was like, well, how could, you, how could you have seen Coming to America but not Trading Places? I just, I don't get it. Do you it. think that Coming to America has proven to be uh, – more uh, culturally like with yes. changing norms of what's okay for comedy. I guess you, you mean because like trading places is so racist, but like the ra- the racism is the comedy, right? No, that's as many a comedian would point out. It's like there there's you know some comedians and Eddie Murphy I think is is known for this feeling like we've taken away the ability to make fun of racism in ways yes. that, that use racism to make racism make fun of racism. Um, and so I think Training Places maybe is a little edgier than Coming to America. It's a little more rated R to Coming to America's PG, I think. You know, I, I think it's, I mean. <laughs> Wait, so I, way, I, just, I just noticed, I can see in the, ref, uh, we're, guys, we're, we're on uh, Zencaster here recording. And I can see, uh, we can see each other. I can see in the window behind you, I can see the Mets are on. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it's two to one in the middle of the eighth. Um Whoa. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's interesting. I actually think that they are racy in different ways, right? That I don't mean racy. I, I don't mean that as a pun. You mean that, racist that, or race related, or like trading places is like oh, like the overt racism is the comedy, right? Coming to America is vulgar um, in ways that trading places is not, right? Um, I don't know. Tough call. Which is more? Which is more? Well, they're both excellent movies that we should all watch. Okay. Anyway. Um, how did I get to? I don't even remember how we got here. Um, students hadn't heard of trading. Oh, kids? obstruction appetite. Oh no, it was, it was Guns and Roses, right? And so right. Guns did and that, Roses. So did, that, did it trigger some like late eighties kind of? Yes, yes. <laughs> use your use your illusion, Bobby. No, that's too late. Any anything past GNR lies is you know they they had their window. Appetite for Destruction was no, unbelievable. No, use your illusion is a fantastic album. Yeah. Not a fan. Oh, Bobby. Oh, man. We're going to have this fight. Okay. I'm happy to fight on that. I'm happy to fight on Musical Hills. I don't need your civil war. Nah, that's okay. <laughs> Look, I saw them live. Um, a bunch of us drove down to San Antonio because that's where you go to see a Guns N' Roses concert <laughs> maybe six years ago. Um, ZZ Top opened and then Guns N' Roses played. And they came out and Axel looked like kind of what you would imagine he might look like. Mm-hmm. And he, he couldn't hit the high notes for the first couple of songs. And it was awkward. And he thought, man, I'm just going to watch Slash. That He's the only one that looks like he's doing okay. And But then as it went on, um, 
Axl Rose started moving around more and more and then started singing a little more aggressively. And, and they ended up playing almost two and a half hours. And by the end, it he sounded great. It was incredible. He, I guess he just needs a little time to warm up the old pipes. <laughs> Don't we all? Yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I know by the end Some of more class, than Steve, in, in Civ Pro, when you're teaching those one civil procedure now, by the end of class, you're hitting all the uh, the high Cs. The Spurg note. Uh, how are you um, liking being a civil procedure teacher? I love it. I, I, I can't vouch for the one else. They may not be very happy with it. But, um, oh, they'll, they'll get their chance. But you, I just, listening, you do get to evaluate your professor. Like in con, I mean, I, just like in con law, like so much of it comes down to like, you know, what do you think? It, like, like it's so hard to separate the con law from like political and policy based considerations. And in CivPro, like that stuff is there. But you can actually like it's not infect like every case is not like the prog- the liberals versus the conservatives right like it's not like every well, single topic right it's not it's not as coded into our current partisan politics correct and the policy issues absolutely you know as every proceduralist listening to this is like it's very policy of course it is totally of so is. Um, but they're not, it's not as culture war laden I think is is sort of the thing that makes it it makes it wearying so this is a I mean, when was the last time neither of us were teaching constitutional law? Before there was a constitution? Yeah. <laughs> you know. well, it, was, it was during the Articles of Confederation. So <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. This is my first time not teaching in 20 years. and uh, uh, It's my, yeah. so I haven't, it, other, than years when I, other than years when I was on leave, um, I haven't not taught con law since the last time I taught CIPRO, which was the, which was 06, 06, 07. Way, I just jumped into Pearl Snap and it exploded. <laughs> everywhere including <laughs> on my phone my beer soaked phone oh heaven. um hey if it's if you're gonna soak your phone better beer than anything else all yeah. right why don't we actually turn to like what we actually meant right. need to talk you about you say stuff for a second while i go grab a towel oh never mind oh i get to vamp right now and say yeah. things that bobby can't respond to um let's see what can i say that bobby would be really pissed off about? i'm listening i just am not on screen so the spurs are gonna be really bad this year they're tanking. Uh, I agree with you for once. <laughs> they are tanking. It's like, how can I needle Bobby? Um, that, yeah, there's plenty of ways. I have real concerns. I, I, I have no I, doubt I, you'll get to some here in a minute. I have real concerns with how the law school is being administered. Um, you and me both, brother. <laughs> how, how has your, I mean, without getting into substance, how has your email inbox changed from associate dean to dean? Um. It's pretty – there's a wave when you're first appointed dean. There's a wave of communication that's like, intense. Congratulations. And from or, or, like, or what the heck is happening here? Uh, you know, a little bit of both. Mostly nice. And uh, actually, it was all very nice. But once that wave subsided, it's actually been pretty comparable. And a lot of it's the same conversations. It's just instead of, instead of Ward and I, maybe it's me and Susie now. So it's a it's rotating uh, cast. Our colleague character. Susie Morse. Yes, indeed. Who's the awesome associate dean for academic affairs here, aka former Bobby. <laughs> um, so it's like pe- yeah. people have been walking around saying, "Like Bobby looks so happy now that he's dean." And I was like, <laughs> "So I think Bobby's happy to be dean, but I actually think Bobby's even happier to not be associate dean." Well, you know, here's the thing: I was teaching a full load. I was associate dean. I was directing the Strauss Center. I was co-chair of the university strategic plan. It was a lot. And <laughs> it, I, don't, I think it's kind of comparable. The total workload is very comparable, but it's more unified. Um, but also, I think a lot of our colleagues, unlike you, haven't seen me in presenter mode a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And they may not have understood the sort of like, uh, I can't stop smiling. I'm very fired up. I'm walking around. I'm cracking jokes. And this is making me the happiest person ever. And the other day at the faculty meeting, first faculty meeting, you know, I did that for 20 minutes or whatever it was. And I think a lot of people are like, gosh, he seems to really, really like giving speeches, which, you know. I there guess qualifies me. Right. Um, I, I just want—I have to interrupt to tell you. So it's two to one now, going to the ninth, and Timmy Trumpet is actually at City Field tonight. So he is playing live the Edwin Diaz walk uh, uh, run-in music. Oh, it, oh, that's that's pretty cool. Now we've had a lot of one-run uh, games of late, or one to two-run games, yes. and they have not. A lot of them have not gone our way. That's true. 
Well, we'll find out shortly. As we're as we're sitting here, you can tell from yeah, my what, tone. What percentage of listeners at this point are like, I guess they're just not going to do a show. They're literally just hanging out and tricked <laughs> us. They claim they're claim they're going to talk about Mar-a-Lago and World listen. They, listen, people security. complain that we don't record enough. So you know, if you're going to complain we don't record enough, this is what you're going to get. Um, there, there, there've got to be people who've not listened before who like pick this up. Maybe having been told like, hey, there's these two serious national security law scholars. They're going to debate the week's events. Who are just like you've got to be kidding. This is clearly like some kind of knockoff show using the same title. Um, usually, you can skip ahead like the first eight minutes, ten minutes, and get right to the good stuff. And I guess that's we're our almost to eleven. Eve. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so you want you want that there are these. I mean, there are these um, drone strikes in 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 that you want to talk about um, in Syria, um, right? There's. Um, but, yeah, I'll just I'll just say I think actually they might have been manned aircraft, but I don't know. Oh, even even uh, either way, as I always say. Platforms really not the point from the legal point Indeed. of view. Um, and we're going so to talk, talk about, about that a little bit. Mar-a-Lago developments. Yeah, let's let's kind of dig into um, the the DOJ filing last yes. night. Yes, and Trump just filed too, and his filing has a remarkable concession in it. It's fantastic. I love it. Hi, so um, high quality lawyer. Well, and, and have you have you watched House of the Dragon? Not yet. Okay. Well, I had to finish only murders in the building season two. Have you been enough. watching that? Yes, and I was—I have to say—I awesome. I was really excited because I thought I had predicted who the who the mastermind murderer was. So that can be our—that can be our frivolity. All right. Okay. Should, do you want to just do that a, was thunder, a quick... by the way? So if we lose power, oh well. Oh, um, well. So why don't we do Trump first? Because I think you know. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. That's the main event. Okay. Right. So when last when last we met, mm-hmm. um, we had thanks to the unsealing of the, I think it was after the unsealing of the affidavit, we, we knew the particular offenses. Wait, is that right? Or is that, how, how long has it been since we've done this? So we, we had seen the, we had seen the actual search. Right. The unsealing we had not came seen, later. We had not seen the unsealed affidavit and we had not had the whole um, to do before Judge Cannon. Master. Okay. So let's, let's a quick note on the, uh, the unsealing of the affidavit. Um, I don't feel like it added a lot to the analysis we gave in our last episode. Um, it, it painted a, a thicker picture, but it was pretty pretty much consistent. So I, I think it was pretty consistent. I think I think there are two things that I think really came through in the un, in the unredacted parts of the affidavit that I did not appreciate when we recorded. Um, one of which I actually got wrong. So the first thing is the timeline, right? That the unredacted that the the in unredacted portions of the affidavit. It talks about how actually the, the sort of the give and take between NARA, the National Archive and Records Administration, and Trump went all the way back to May 6th of 2021. That this had actually been like not just a months long process, it had actually been like a year and a half long process. Right. This is no thing where like the FBI showed up at the house and was like, what do you mean? You guys are interested in records? Right. It's um, more than a also, year and quarter old. And related to that, there's more clarity about some of the communications, right, between um, – Trump's lawyers and the government and, you know, folks from NARA, right? Um, the other thing is I had thought, and I think I said when last we recorded, that just based on sort of my, my intuition speculation that I thought the within the Espionage Act, they were focused on 793D. And in the unredacted portions of the affidavit, it's clear they're actually focused on 793E. Um, and the, the difference is that that's about um, retaining national defense information that you're not authorized to have in the first place. Um, and basically, right, that the that actually the government really did go all in on the notion that like none of this stuff was supposed to be in his possession, whether yeah, it was properly I, secured that was or not. Interesting. You and I, I think, thought, I think we said on the last episode, yeah. D or F almost certainly was the main focus. We noted E, but we thought D and F were more likely. Pretty interesting, but make makes sense. Um so, you know, that there were some other little tidbits, but those were the big ones. Um, but then we had all of this, then we've had all this craziness before Judge Cannon with, you know, Trump filing, I, I guess it's a lawsuit. I mean, <laughs> like, it's weird, right? Because, like, it looks kind of like it's a Rule 41 motion, um, but usually you file that before the judge who approved the warrant. And this was not filed before Judge Reinhardt. This was filed as a standalone civil action in so the you, Southern you District of Florida. you interpret that as simply an attempt to try to, you know, hope to get a different judge who maybe yes. would be more favorable? That's no and more, it, no less than that. And they did. I mean, I'm actually, like, by all by appearances. The way, by the way, is that, does, you, I, I'm more, much more familiar with the Southern District of New York than any other district in terms yeah. of the procedures. But for SDNY, you know, on your cover sheet, when you're filing, you, you're supposed to identify related cases. 
Uh, and of course, the reason is because they're going to shunt it back to the other. Um, do you do you know how common that requirement is? And is there is there anything wrong with blatantly not disclosing an obvious related case? Yes, it's on all civil cover sheets in the federal courts. Yes, there is something wrong with not disclosing an obvious related case. Um, is that I you should, know? I is, should refine the question. Definitely something wrong. Anything uh, illegal about it or otherwise likely to result in a consequence? No, I mean, so what usually happens, so Texas tried this. So Texas, um, this is a really shady thing that Texas did. So Texas filed a lawsuit, Bobby, in, oh gosh, um, Amarillo, right, against the Biden administration challenging one of its immigration policies. And by filing in Amarillo, they had a 95% chance of having the case assigned to Judge Kaczmarek and a 5% chance of having it assigned to Chief Judge Lynn. Um, and, you know, math is math. They got a bad draw. They got Chief Judge Lynn. And only once it was assigned to Chief Judge Lynn did they file a corrected civil cover sheet where they noted that it, there was a related case that they had failed to note on the initial filing. And the related case was a case before Judge Kaczmarek. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so they said this case should be consol- you know this case should be transferred to Judge Kaczmarek because of a related case we didn't even note in our civil cover sheet. And Judge Lynn was like, um, no. <laughs> so usually probably usually the usually the sanction is that if the you know um um the the case yeah. will be transferred back. Now the yeah. problem is here like you can't really transfer the civil case to Judge Reinhardt. So anyway, but the other thing is like Trump got super lucky. Like he randomly drew what is, I think, by all accounts, the judge on that entire bench most likely to be favorable to him, Judge Alicia Cannon, who he appointed. And so Cannon then issued this like crazy order saying, I'm preliminary intending to appoint a special master. Bobby, never mind that Trump hasn't identified a cause of action <laughs> um, or, you know, like how the court has jurisdiction to entertain this lawsuit or a complaint or that he hadn't even served DOJ properly. I mean, it's just like the, the, the litany of, I don't know. I, I'm less alarmed by, by that preliminary step in part because um, it is often the case, as you know, um, when a case pretty clearly, when the merits are on something are clearly pointing one way, often judges will go out of their way to accede to steps so as to avoid providing, you know, distracting or extending causes for uh, further litigation, interlocutory appeals or reversal on appeal. So um, I bend over backwards because you're going to lose anyway. Exactly. Like if you if you think it's going to go totally against somebody else, very often yeah. the best the biggest sign that you're losing is you start getting your way on all kinds of not like that preposterous procedural thing. stuff. So this was my take too. Is that is that I think there's a way to look at what Judge Cannon has done that this far thus far as sort of appeasing Trump, right? And not I mean because like Bobby, she hasn't issued any coercive relief, right? She hasn't told DOJ to stop doing anything. No, she exactly. hasn't told In fact, them, too late. <laughs> well, there is also that. Um, <laughs> yes, stop I mean, that. I mean, review, so, you right. so, so just for folks who are not familiar with this, so usually, I mean, it's not that common to have a special master appointed in a case like this. It's not unheard of, but usually you do it right away because the whole point is that you want the special master and not the government to be the one going through all of the seized materials and deciding which ones you know go into which bucket. And Bobby, at this point, I mean, DOJ said in their filing earlier today, it was last night, late last night, um, that they're basically done with their review. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not it's not that many documents. It's not that hard to review it, right? Especially especially given how many of them have classification markings all well, over them. Well, there is there there is that. Um, okay, so. Um, uh, DOJ, DOJ's filing, I think, is that. So another piece of the story here is that by pushing all of these legal buttons, Trump has given DOJ a number of opportunities to put into the public domain stuff that would not otherwise be in the public domain. I mean, like the pictures they put in the memo they filed last night about what they found in you know when they searched Mar-a-Lago. Now he's, I would go further and say he's basically compelled them when DOJ yes. has been... Pretty clearly showing the signs of a department that understands that earlier uh, DOJ involvement in you know, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump stuff, uh, being real clear and forward leaning with your public statements was ultimately not good, shall we say, for FBI and DOJ. And so here, th- it's not like they've been leading with a lot of these details. 
But they're keeping filings from Donald Trump that oblige DOJ to respond. And so in their yeah. responses, they're setting forth much more detail, much more damning detail yeah. about what they have found. And also, I, I would say, especially just the course of the investigation. And here I'll get to a point that I think is one of the key points people don't understand. As is so often the case, there's the crime, there's the cover up, as they say. And here you've got the set of potential offenses that we explored in our last episode. Um, but now it's increasingly looking like, you know, a big part of the story ultimately is going to be about obstruction of justice or, or false statements to investigators and the, the, the collection of offenses that you can think of as kind of collateral to investigations, where in hopes of avoiding primary liability, people commit this sort of meta- uh, set of mistakes that become an easier basis for charge. Mm-hmm. Just looking at the litany of events with the government request for cooperation early on in producing the records and then following up as it became likely and more and more apparent that indeed records had not been, pr- the full record hadn't been produced, even though Donald Trump through his lawyers was representing that everything had been turned over when, as we've now seen, like that's just a stark fact. They represented that there was nothing else. And there, there clearly, clearly was something else. Now, there's an there's a great post on Lawfare from Quinta and Scott Anderson and Ben all laying out, you know, in detail all of this. And they're really gentle in how they frame it. They they, they lead with, hey, could be a mistake, could be the lawyers thought one thing and somebody had squirreled away these documents somewhere else, you know, like in the president's desk. Um but that seems a bit unlikely in the circumstances. And the filing yesterday from DOJ lays out in really clear language this moment where having, having served a grand jury criminal investigative subpoena for the production of all these documents and having received some documents in response, the government followed up with the very clear, you know, clear request. Is right. there anything else? Right. Have and, you given us everything? And they said in no uncertain terms, we've looked for it all. There is nothing else. Yep. And that's obviously not true. So whoever signed that is seriously in legal jeopardy and really at this point needs to be lawyered up themselves. So, I mean, that's the th- what, what's really, I mean, the you know, everyone's focused on Trump's criminal liability. And I think, you know, what ought to be pretty clear at this point is that his lawyers are in deep trouble. His um, lawyers, his staff, there's in, and, and he's kind of, the track record is pretty clear. He, he'll throw some people under the bus if, and when it gets hot enough. And these people didn't understand, like, obviously he's in, he's in no position to pardon them. So um, it's, no, I, right. I think we're likely to see over time, certainly some indictments. Yes. Of people involved in signing their names yes. and or speaking directly in in manifestly false ways to the investigators. I mean, indi- um, but Bob, Bobby, indictments were like I, I don't know why you'd even go to. Tr- like, I mean, the government has so Trump is trickier for political reasons, but legally, the government has you know Alina Haba and probably at least one or two other lawyers dead to rights on false statements on obstruction of a grand jury investigation. I mean, like just I. I I don't. So I've never understood why people will stand in front of a bus for Trump, but I really don't understand why lawyers would like not just risk their reputations, but now like their liberty on may on, on you know go just going all in on this guy. Like that's the part that I almost find sad. So what do you think? So let's hypothesize um, indictments of, of some of these folks who who were lawyers. Um, Indicting them and their desire to potentially cooperate to get out of trouble or to minimize their consequences doesn't eliminate attorney-client privilege. Um, is it is there a pathway where indicting them results in them possibly cooperating and testifying in any sort of relevant way? I mean, there is a there is a crime is, fraud exception to privilege, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, and, not, and not everything. everything is covered. And privilege is only about communications. It's not about. It gets murky, obviously. You can have actions that were undertaken in the course of representation. But one wonders, I guess what I'm getting at is, if you have an indictment of someone who is not one of the attorneys, as as one of the early steps of what may come out of this, that's actually, you know, it's a clear path towards someone who potentially may decide to cooperate. That's that's assuming that if they have, if they have the nerve to, to bring an indictment against the former president, um, that they don't have 
all that they need from other sources. It's not, it's not obvious that they would actually need some of these particular people to testify against the former president. Um, and, but one thing we certainly do not know, and that I think is a key point in all of this is, there's no question that the records were wrongfully there. But as I said in our last episode, there is still some question as to what they might be able to prove about President Trump and his knowledge of this. The fact that some of these documents, though, were in his personal working desk with his personal papers, like old passports, that's going to make it harder for him, if it comes down to it, to deny that he was aware of what was going on. Maybe he'll try to argue that he lacked the requisite mens rea because he incorrectly mistake of law believe that he declassified everything or that anything he keeps oh, wait, okay so so i want to talk about the declassified point right so so first the the point in the government's memo about the passports being commingled with classified papers which is why they took the passports is savage like they're, they're like everyone's so pissed off about the passports here's why we took them because in a criminal investigation having passports right next to this other document might be used as evidence of who was in possession of that document right and absolutely and the uh, warrant itself in part for that reason yeah. expressly authorized and this is for those who don't know this this is very typical uh associated personal papers that might be adjacent in storage right Why? i mean because it sheds light on who may have been handling and in control of those papers so so, all right, so bobby so trump filed his response late this afternoon early this evening and here's my favorite line in the response i mean the, the response is full of lots of nonsense including fruit of the poisonous tree right which is like a doctrine for supreme <laughs> anyway don't get me started all right <laughs> so on page i don't know 14 right um um, movement is amenable to conditions proposed by the government about the special master, blah, 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 blah. Here's my favorite. Movement also agrees that it would be appropriate for the special master to possess a top secret SCI security clearance. Steve, why would they need a top secret SCI security clearance? Like, if Trump declassified everything, you don't... Okay, I mean, so in fairness, that could just be lawyerly arguing in the alternative that they they're not waiving their. Bobby, claim. they're not arguing in the alternative. Nowhere in the response do they talk about the documents all being declassified. Mm, interesting. They don't even they don't argue that at any point in the response. Their argument about like returning the documents has nothing to do with declassification. Would you argue that they actually could not at this point, like that they've stopped themselves from raising that argument later? I don't know that it's reached that stage. I don't. I mean, I'm estoppel is equitable, right? And I just I have. I think estoppel doctrines, it's got to be really obvious for it to be estoppel. Like, I, I don't think they've, like, forfeited the argument. I, but I just think it's, it's rather telling, though, that what they're actually filing in court, right, is completely consistent with DOJ's view of what's happening here versus what Trump is saying, you know, to anyone who's listening to him. Well, well he's he's working in a different court setting. He's working in the court of public opinion. Or- yeah, but there comes a point where, like, you know, his lawyers would be better served if he would just shut up. I will say that is probably not the first time that sentiment has been expressed <laughs> by his legal team over the past, well, I was going to say six years, but I imagine it's much further than that. Um, maybe the all-time most uh, difficult to manage client. Um, all right. Well, what happens uh, next? Can, wait, can, can There's going to be a thing? ruling on the special master, but it won't matter because they've already done the review and it most – this to me is the important point. Like everyone's going to freak out no matter what Judge Cannon says about the special master, right? And like honestly, it does. Like unless she literally issues like an injunction requiring the government to return everything it sees to Which, Trump. By the way, there's no way she's not going to do that. And I, if she I, does, the Eleventh Circuit will stay that in like a, a second and a half. I, yeah, I just don't think she would, and I don't know why she would. I think what will happen is, at most, she'll appoint a special master to to re-review the documents to do a second guess review of the same documents strictly limited to identifying documents as to which there's a legitimate claim of attorney client privilege that could attach to them. And I think if she were to do that. It's fine. I, in fact, I, I think that might even be a, a sensible way for the judge to sort of, you know, prevent from forming some procedural objection to what's now yeah. going to unfold. No, no, listen, listen, there's, if, if, if listen, I think part of why people are paranoid is because she's a Trump appointee, right? And because like, you know, if you go back and read her Senate Judiciary Committee questionnaire, it's a little bit uh, awkward, but you know, it's, there's a perfectly valid narrative here 
where all she's doing is giving Trump the sort of the appearance that he's had his day in court. And well, look, as I said earlier, I think that's actually very important. It's also yep. very standard. I yep. think it's really wrong to assume. Well, it's, it's standard for certain defendants. That they're, you know, there, I know there's a lot of people that feel like if if a president appoints somebody, the justice is in the bag or the judge is in the bag for them. And, and I think it's a pernicious thing to just assume and without without having a reason to believe that in a particular case. Um, so, so far, I see no reason to be particularly concerned about how she's handling it. I think the question is what she does next. We'll see. But Indeed. You know, as you say, that, I, I don't know why she would go out on a big limb to do something squarely um, on such a minor issue where the review has already been accomplished. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I mean, the... This is so late. <laughs> it's yeah. all just so late. Well, this is all, you know, this will all be forgotten. It, it, the, the, the legal details of this will be forgotten within some number of weeks or months because bigger things are coming from this investigation. Correct. Right That's now, it's correct. just, a, you know, as, as was the case for four years, all things in Trumplandia are irresistibly fascinating to everyone. And it's easy to decry that, but it's also incredibly important for all the rule of law issues that are associated with this sort of stuff, uh, or in this case, national security concerns. And so we definitely haven't heard the last of this story. <laughs> Unfortunately. All said and done, the special master question won't even be something people are, are tracking in the large. I think that's right. Time. I really do think that's right. Um, okay. Um, should we take a really quick detour to Guantanamo to observe an anniversary? Ah, which one is it this time? <laughs> So today is the sixth anniversary of the D.C. Circuit's ruling in Al-Nashiri 2. Now, you might be asking, why are we observing the anniversary of a random D.C. Circuit ruling in a case that has like 47 rounds of litigation in the D.C. Circuit? Nine-layer um, dip? Uh, nine la- well, this is pre-dip. Yeah. Um, this is the bowl. <laughs> um, so so bobby if as you as you know and like probably more of our listener like the sum total of people in the world who know what i'm about to say are probably well represented on this podcast um but the you know there was a whole effort by nashiri nashiri by the way the alleged mastermind of the october 2000 bombing of the uss cole there's an effort by his lawyers to have the civilian courts resolve before his military commission trial whether the military commission may lawfully exercise jurisdiction, given that the offenses in his case predated 9-11. You know, you and I have done this, but we've talked about this before. I don't mean to relitigate that point. Um, I think you and I, though, both agreed that whatever the answer, it sure would have been helpful to have that question answered before going through years of protracted, you know, potentially pointless, right, criminal proceedings. Um, so six years ago today was the D.C. Circuit's two-to-one decision in which the D.C. Circuit said there was no need to resolve that question now because we trust that the military commission will resolve it expeditiously. And then in a passage that I'm sure Judge Griffith has come to regret, he <laughs> says, Nashiri's lawyers have suggested that you know a post-conviction appeal wouldn't reach our court before 2024. But they have no, you know, they have not shown us any basis for that for that timetable, and we have no, we, we we cannot understand why it would take so long. It's basically just the passage. Unbelievable. Um, here we uh, are, August thirty first, twenty twenty two, and we are nowhere near a trial in Nashiri. No and remember, I mean, as you know, Bobby, they won't, they won't get it. To, they won't get it by twenty twenty four. It's gonna be much later. Are you kidding? They won't get it by twenty twenty six. Like at this point, if Al Nashiri is actually convicted, and there's a post conviction appeal to the first the Court of Military Commission review, and then the DC Circuit, Bobby, if you told me a notice of appeal in the DC Circuit would at the over under for filing a notice of appeal in the DC Circuit was January first, twenty twenty eight, I would bet the over. That's an interesting question. Yeah, <laughs> I want I want to you know disagree, but I really can't. Right. So anyway, so that so I just an interest like it's just it's I, I call this in my in my little calendar of like things I call this Nashiri Day because it's it's you know the day every year where we're reminded of how naive the DC Circuit well, was you about know, the military. Somebody, missions. you or some listener, put it on your calendar now. Flip ahead to 2024 <laughs> Nashiri Day, and you know that's the day to really celebrate or mm. mark not celebrate but remark upon it. Don't don't worry, I'll be right uh, for episode. Uh, 461 of the National Security Law Podcast. Wow, what's the over-under on that? I, I'd say under. <laughs> under. 361. That's probably under. Under that, too. <laughs> hey, maybe it'll be 222. 
Ooh, the lo- I mean, I, I think we now have a bit where we can hold out the specter of the lost episode, like, it's like the lost episode of Gilligan's Island, right? We'll just hold well, maybe, out this. Maybe, maybe some, you know, for pre-pandemic, we were getting invited. We were doing it. We did the show on the road. We did a couple yeah. of secret private episodes in certain audiences. Mm. Um, you know, maybe somebody will have us out now. That are, are you wait, are you really inviting us out on the you, Mister Busiest Person in the Law School, and hey, me, Mister Second we Busiest Person everywhere? I, wherever they are, I want to go. Right. Hey, people. Alaska or Hawaii alumni. Oh, yeah, we could do a Hawaii show. Um, I no, will say that. Actually, the, you, know the, what, you know what we need to do a show? We need uh, to do North a, Dakota. What? Well, that'd be cool, too, um, in the summer. But uh, how about a London show, huh? See, I like where you're – I mean, surely the Brits care about American national security law. Well, I know right? we know a few do. There's a nonstop, there's a nonstop flight from Austin to London. Multiple. Well, one okay. one good one. The other ones are the BA. Yeah, uh, Norwegian didn't bring back theirs, did they? We took that once. You could, for the price of basically, you you could get a great you know quasi business class uh, ticket on Norwegian that was like very affordable, relatively speaking. Interesting. Yeah, but Interesting. I, don't, I think they they canned that route during the pandemic. I was at, um, as you know, I was at this um, uh, work thing um, earlier this week. And one of the people who I met there um, was Priya Iyer, who's the general counsel of American Airlines. Oh, um, that's very cool. And I may or may not have been personally lobbying her to add a, a Austin to DCA nonstop on American. We do need an additional. Like, I love the Southwest <laughs> route, but it'd be nice to have another. It would be nice. Um, all right. Anyway, so that's Guantanamo. Um, you want to talk a bit about uh, our kinetic activity in Syria? Yeah, so this is your periodic uh, public service announcement reminder. That we're still at war. We are still deployed. Well, that's isn't that the million-dollar question? Are we at war? What does it mean to say we are? Um, well, we are still deployed militarily within the borders of Syria without the consent of the Assad regime, but we have never yet let that matter. Raises interesting UN charter issues, as we've rehearsed on the show many times. Um, we're deployed militarily still in eastern Syria, and from time to time, uh, you know, it is not all peace and quiet. There are a variety not only of some lingering Islamic State elements, maybe more than lingering, um, but you've also got the Iranian-backed and IRGC-backed various groups, not all of which are Syrian government forces. Some of them are basically organized armed groups that are... uh, responsive, ultimately armed by, supported by, perhaps directed by Iranian authorities operating in this region. And from time to time, they take shots at the American base. There's there's a place, as the Times reports it, there's a place in northeast Syria where U.S. forces are um, known as the Green Village. I guess this is like the green zone. Not, I don't know. But there was a rocket attack around August 15th. Um, and about a week later, so I guess this was last week on maybe Tuesday local time. Uh, they were they were not drones; they were uh, American manned aircraft. Uh, had there was according to the Times a lot of surveillance of the facilities that these organized armed groups were staging out of, especially with their uh, ammunition storage. And uh, so we dropped bunker busters on a, on a slew of these things to degrade their capacity. Um, and then I think there was a second strike the next night. Now, this is not unprecedented. Uh, something similar happened. There was a provocation. There was, a, there was an armed attack on U.S. forces uh, back in like February. And the administration authorized or allowed uh, CENTCOM, Central Command, to respond in kind uh, thereafter. So it's just another example of sort of the low-level ongoing use of armed force in context where the public really – probably has little sense that there's a continuing combat military presence. Of course, this begs questions about, so if it is it if it's episodic, is it is it war? Is it armed conflict? What's going on here? Um, Steve, I guess the interesting question is, notice the absence in, in that fact pattern I just laid out of Al-Qaeda or Islamic State as yeah. key actors. Islamic State's in the background because I think, I don't know what the official Biden position is on this, but I would assume they would say something like, the forces are there under color of the AUMF as a matter of U.S. domestic law. The, the uh, Bush administration would have said AUMF and Article 2. I don't know if the Biden administration would just say AUMF. Hard to know. I feel like, I feel like the Obama administration would have said AUMF in lead, but 
Article 2 in the background, but they're there because of the ongoing, still continuing state of armed conflict with the Islamic State. But once properly there from a domestic law perspective for that purpose, part of what comes with that is the ability to respond as needed with necessity and proportionality in that sort of that sort of more UN charter sense rather than the low accents to respond when there's an attack or, or an imminently threatened attack against you by someone else who may not be the Islamic State. That's what's going on here. Um, to me, this is an old and familiar story. What do you think? I, I think I basically agree. I just think it's fascinating how um, the old and familiar story that used to be front page news is now like, you know, buried and just so like i don't even know i mean i feel like bobby there was a time in our professional lives where this would have been like the dominant story in our field right oh, and now it's, like, yeah absolutely it would have been like huge way the american military is holding territory in syria because of a terrorist group that detached from another terrorist group and now we're fighting iranian-backed organized armed groups there um, here's a question that people should ponder as they just think about what are the larger significance? What's the larger significance of this? Well, I don't know. Imagine a different president. Um, if the pattern of both parties in the White House has been to say that when Iranian back, um, Iranian controlled and directed and armed organized armed groups are carrying out for- strikes on U.S. forces or attempting to do so, um, you can respond in kind. Of course, this leads to things like the Soleimani strike, which at least occurred within Iraqi rather than Iranian territory. But the, but the big question that lurked then and in this episode illustrates hasn't really gone away is okay. But what about scaling up from there or, or scaling down in terms of who the target is keeping it at a low level in terms of who the target is or the material, but changing the geography. Why not? Why not a strike on IRGC staging areas within Iranian territory? Well, there's obvious, obvious, policy reasons why not diplomatic reasons why not but what's the legal reason yep that's right um by the way just as an update for those who are you know wondering um diaz uh uh got the dodgers out one two three on nine pitches Woo, that's a clean sheet that is a clean sheet with one strikeout so his strikeout percentage is still over 50 percent for the season He's a very, very bad. By the man. way, is a cra- I mean, like strikeout percentage. Like he's literally struck out more than half of the batters he has faced. Like that's insane. Okay. Well, should anyway. this be our pivot to frivolity? I think so. But yeah. you haven't watched House of the Dragon, so we can't talk. I guess we can talk about only murders in the building. That's what I want to talk about. All right. Okay. So I'm sure there are people who haven't uh, finished season two yet. So y'all really? sign off now. What are you doing uh, if you haven't finished season two? Well, yet? There may be people who've not been watching only murders in the building. So let me just say before you go, cause you should go cause you need to watch it. And then you don't want this spoiler cause we're totally going to do spoilers. Um, it's really great. Don't you think? Really I mean, I think it's just a great joy watching. This I think show. it's great. I think it's cute. I think it's clever. I think it's smart. I think the acting is fantastic. The music's good. And I think this is someone who actually doesn't usually like Martin short. Like, yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. Okay, so here goes. Martin Short has become the best part of it. This season, he has been unbelievable. I mean, it's yeah. been it's been really fun, both for his actual acting, but his comedy, which frankly, you know, in the past has often sort of graded on me a little bit. Yes. He's just brilliant. I mean, they, they wrote him really, really well, and he made really great use of the material this year. But I also, I love a lot of the sort of secondary characters too. Like, I just, well, you, I, I mean, you're a big New Yorker. You gotta, yes. you gotta resonate a little bit to the whole. Oh my god, this is so upper west side. So upper west side. Yes, it's yeah. so upper. Like, I mean, I, it's not just like it, it's not just like a New York show. It is no, it's, it's upper, it's west upper west side west. show. Like, this is a show that can't be set in any neighborhood. Other than the Upper West it's Side, kind of, it's, it's there's sort of a little bit of the a Woody Allen love letter to New yeah. York, but but yeah. focused like a laser. Yep. In like the the mid '60s or yep. low '70s, I'm not yep. sure where the Arconia is supposed to be. Um, um, I think, so. So the building that it resembles the most to me, I think, is the is it the Ansonia? There's a building on Broadway in the '70s. Shoot, yeah. I'm gonna, gonna, I'm gonna get. It's like the Ansonia or something like that that has like the big entrance and the internal courtyard, and like I think it's meant to be sort of like a stand-in for that. All right, so full-on spoiler time. So you had theories. You were trying to. Who did you think the murderer was the whole time this season? Um, so I thought 
that the murder was syndicating. Okay. Yeah, because they, they, they set Tina Fey up to be just so yep. unlikable. Ooh, wow. My memory is not fair, is not deserting me. The Ansonia is a building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on Broadway between 73rd and 74th. Nice. Go me. So, I, I mean, I, it's really bad if I didn't remember this because my grandmother used to live on 72nd and Central Park West. But, um, okay, so I thought it was Cindy Canning, um, right? Because it just seemed like, you know, eh, I, anyway. Um, and obviously, I was close. Yeah, very. I, I liked it. I thought it was good. I loved um, the way that they set up early in the season, the whole Son of Sam game with, yes. with 1970s yes. Martin Short, which was yes. kind of brilliant and weird and funny yes. in its own way. But it yes. seemed a little frivolous and silly until you realize, like, no, no, there's this – they're setting Martin Short up. Like, this yes. is his season. Really By the way, speaking of spoilers, I was 100% convinced Steve Martin was not actually dead. Oh, you know, at first, I, I mean, I knew they probably hadn't killed him off, but I yes. thought maybe they would have to revive him. I really thought he'd – I thought – What's her face? Alice was stabbing him for real. No. And after a second, you kind of figure out, like, hey, wait, this is this is all no. a setup. They're all part of the the role play. Yes. Um, um, I, so, I, so, I feel but, like her character, by the way, Alice's character. Yes. Eh. Yeah. They they, I it didn't ring true for me that uh, that Mabel would be so quick to get that attached to somebody given that the show was making it seem yep. like only maybe hours or a day or so had gone by. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, there's, and, there's and it right. felt like very plot driven. Like let's just, we, we need her to, to fall for this woman. Right. Alice is like so the one second, right. Alice is like the one secondary character I had a hard time getting really into. But you know, one thing that, one of the things I loved about season two, Bobby is how, different episodes started from the perspective of different characters. Yeah, that was cool. Like, I, I thought that was super cool how they did that. Um, um, they miss, okay, I'm forgetting the names. So the uh, season one's murder, uh, who was from the office also, what's her name on the show? Uh, is it, it's not Jan. Oh, it's, uh, it's Jan. Yeah, it is Jan. Okay. So the whole bit, the prison bits with her and Steve <laughs> Martin are awesome. And really great. But when SAS goes in, on behalf yes. of Steve Martin, that yes. was comedy gold. But amazing. they missed the chance they should have had. And I almost imagine like it's on the cutting room floor. There should have been something the next episode where like he like goes in feeling bad about sending Sass in. And then Jan reveals to him like, no, no, no I'm now in love. Like you're, I don't care about you anymore, Steve Martin. I'm in love with Sass instead. <laughs> that would have been great. Um, okay. So – Karen, to her credit, spotted one problem with the big reveal. Yeah. Okay. So, so the big reveal is that the bad cop, whose name I don't remember because I'm oh, yeah. tired. Yeah, yeah. Right. That the bad cop meets what Poppy, right? Um, yeah. In the same in the bar in Oklahoma. Right. Okay. Right. A bar where people are gathered to look for Poppy. Mm, so you're supposed to you have to believe that her disguise, her change of appearance was sufficient to, to fool to, those people. To, it would to make sense the, if she's there like trying to wallow in all the attention she's but like to with. fool doesn't to, like no one looked at her and said, Wow, you look an awful lot like the girl we're all looking for. Right. Well, she's got glasses on, so as you know, you become completely a different person. But also like you know, that would like that would be really dumb. Like why would she randomly go to the bar, right, and risk detection? Well, because it's it's all an ego trip, right? She's well, yeah, no, I just, really. they didn't set it up as an ego trip. They set it up as an actual attempt to escape her identity. That's right? what I'm saying. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like Karen, Karen is probably right that that actually is a bit of a. I think they could have papered it over if they just had some narration where she said, like, I, I having having adopted this disguise yes. and different yes. voice, I couldn't resist seeing all the drama around yep. me. Yep, yeah. that, that that would have gone a long way towards smoothing over the apparent discontinuity. Well, speaking so speaking of things where like plot just moves thing, things along. Obviously, I don't want you to spoil anything for me on House of the Dragon. Mm. Um, or is it House have you of read, the have Dragon read, or Dragons? House of the Dragons. Okay. Have you read Have you read Fire and Blood? No, I didn't okay. read Fire and Blood. So, you're, so, so you'd be coming to this cold. Pretty cold. Like I mean, okay. I know the general sketches of the the story, mm-hmm. but not if really I say cold. Dance of the Dragons, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? It's one of the it's it's the name for one of the early wars that predated the game the Song of Fire and Ice period, right? But you don't know who it was between or what it was about. Not really, no. So I'll be coming pretty cold. I okay. so here's here's what I'm getting at. As you and I talked about, the last season of Game of Thrones got very very plotty 
in what yes. the characters said and did yes. to the point where like, ah, it's, it's disrupting my suspension of disbelief. Cause it's just yes. that guy wouldn't do that or she wouldn't do that. So um, I think house of the dragon has flaws, but that is not one of them. Good. Good. So, but remember, right. Cause unlike the last season of game of Thrones, house of the dragon has a completed book. Right. And so, right. The house of the dragon, the series is following the book as opposed to the series is off on its own filling and stuff. The book never got to, you know, I must say, it is maddening that George R. R. Martin just like just admit you're not going to finish the series. Just, just admit you're never going to write that next book, and just just release the stuff you got. You could sell it; people will buy it, and then just walk away and be like, "Yeah, you know." And the rest of it kind of goes the way of the show. Um, By the way, speaking of really cool sports things, yeah, um, Serena just knocked out the two seed at the U.S. Open. Oh, uh, this could be the story of the year. Oh my gosh! If Serena makes a run, I would I would die. I would be so excited. Yeah, I'd say uh, you know first two rounds not too surprising. She, I mean, she can do it. She absolutely could do it. And if the crowd gets really behind her and she doesn't, you know, tweak a knee or something, I mean, she just knocked out the number two seed in the whole tournament. So I feel like now it's like you know people going to talk. That'd be a hell of a way to go out. Oh my god! Imagine retiring in the U.S. Open final. I would just that would just be so cool. That's very cool. All right. So, so am I going to like House of the Dragons? Yes. It's so it's it's more diplomat it's more not diplomat it's more intrigue at this point bobby that it's like sort of like second third season no that's not quite right it's it's like it's the intrigue part of game of thrones without like at least to this point the mass like bloodshed and death okay all right is you remember how the first season of game of thrones on hbo was like super sexed up and, yes. and like they were trying really hard to make sure yes. you understood you're watching HBO. Yes. Is it like that? Um, not I'm trying to figure out like to what extent can I watch this with my kids around? So I'm in the first two episodes, there are two scenes in brothels, um, okay. which are yeah, a little standard awkward. Game of Thrones type things. Standard, standard Game of Thrones brothel stuff. Um, and there's, um, how do I say this might be a spoiler alert. Um, there is one medical procedure where they don't spare you on the, 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 the procedure. Yuck. (laughs) And I I will even, and, 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 and a little bit of sort of conventional, like going out and killing thieves and villains gore. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, I'm, I'm excited to go back to Westeros. Oh, and the crabs. There are crabs. crabs. Like actual crabs, (laughs) actual crabs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so many possibilities none of them good yes uh all right do we have a show title i thought i thought it's well, i thought it's appetite for obstruction okay yeah i like it or or what was the other one um or um, um serious, serious but, stupid. but stupid people just assume that's us oh that's so it's a double entendre <laughs> i think obstruction will be good um, all right appetite for we'll save serious but stupid for another time yeah it, it's a perennial <laughs> whereas appetite for obstruction is pretty specific it's really yeah all right episode 225 appetite for destruction hey look we did multiple episodes in august look at us yeah this is this is a miracle we're actually right. we're restoring our our batting average we're like francisco lindor we had a long period of really subpar <laughs> average gradually getting, reverting back to where it had been all right well i think that about does it Oh man! All right. Uh, next week is Labor Day, so we will not. We will. We will be skipping Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to all! Happy um, Labor but we'll Day. we'll probably be back the week after that. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, you know, send us frivolity ideas, guys, because clearly we don't get out enough. <laughs> um, stay safe out there, and if you're going to keep classified documents at home. I don't even know what to say to that. I think you put them in a red well, wrap some tape around it, good to go. <laughs> Isn't that what they said? <laughs> when they actually handed them over, they're like, uh, here are these. Oh, Jesus Christ. Goodbye. Adios.